Hello and welcome to the United on Wheels podcast. What's going on? I'm Paul Amadeus Lane and I'm so happy to have you with me today. And thank you so much for all your support, sharing the episodes and your feedback. We greatly, greatly appreciate it. And don't forget, we always want to hear from you. So like, share, comment. I thought on this show that we invite a very special guest on. Uh, someone who has been in the fight for advocacy long before the ADA. And someone who was instrumental in getting the ADA into law. Who am I talking about? You know what I'm talking about. Let's bring him on now. This is Jim Weissman. I'm president and CEO of United Spinal Association. Okay, so here we go. You're listening to United on Wheels, the web's best podcast for active wheelchair users. Follow United Spinal Association on Facebook. Connect with United Spinal on Twitter via United Spinal. Visit our website, www.unitedspinal.org. United on Wheels, with your host. This is Paul Amadeus Lane. Make sure you connect with me at paulamadeuslane.com. I am so excited to have our next guest join us. I have been a big fan of his for many, many years. He's done so much for the cause. You know him, my friend of yours, Jim Wiseman, president and CEO of United Spinal Association. Jim, how are you, my friend? I'm good, thank you. I mean, it's a strange time to say I'm good. We've got 100,000 people dead and lots of pain and suffering in our community and all of America. No, that is so true. And, and Jim, you know, before we really delve into our discussion today, how are things going over at United Spinal in the midst of uh, this COVID-19? How's everyone doing over there? Well, you know, United Spinal was founded in 1946. So we have to, um, we have faith that we'll continue till 2046. So I never felt like our existence was threatened by the lockdown. We're headquartered in New York. We're actually in Queens and we're actually in the part of Queens that was most affected by the virus. We sent everyone home to work from home March 11th or 12th. Um, and we made a successful transition. We have 48 employees, only about 14 work in the headquarters office anyway. And uh, we many work out of home offices. So the transition for staff wasn't as bad. As, it was very bad for me. It was hard. I'm talking to you from my basement office now, and I've been here for two and a half months. But most of our staff made the switch easily. People with disabilities, on the other hand, and our disabled staff, too, uh, are struggling. And we realized right away, I mean right away, as soon as this happened, that people that need home care were going to be separated from their care or their care would be interrupted or reduced or somehow affected by COVID. So we run a resource center that people write emails to or call for help. And we alerted the resource center to this issue so that we could, one, solve problems for people that are having problems um, there with 
home care or repairs or wheelchair repairs or whatever during COVID, but two, and just as important, if not more important, look and find hotspots of where complaints are coming from. If they're all coming from Iowa, or the majority are coming from Iowa, that they can't get home care, we have to get to the state capitol. We have to be talking to uh, Department of Social Services and health officials in Iowa. So we started right away to do that in February, in early February. And then, um, the Nielsen Foundation, with whom we've worked in the past on hurricane relief, uh, two years ago when there were three hurricanes, uh, Puerto Rico, Houston, and South Florida, uh, we were able to take a Nielsen Foundation grant and provide direct assistance to people in those communities with spinal cord injury. Nielsen was impressed, I guess, with our work, and we love Nielsen and their work. And uh, they actually uh, awarded us a million dollars to provide relief to people with spinal cord injury um, during the COVID period. We've been making $500 mini grants to hundreds and hundreds of people who write us a hardship story um, there's very little fraud, basically none. Most of the hardship is real. Um, and, and $500 doesn't even touch most people's problems. Um, we have an emergency fund. We got, we got grant money to keep chapters and peer support groups running. They buying them virtual software, uh, for virtual meetings, for support groups, things like that and chapters. Um, and Nielsen made all this possible because of their uh, connection with the SDI community. But home care is a huge problem. Yeah. And uh, even, even now, there's solutions that are not being looked at yet, but will be, I think, to the home care problem. But I, I, I don't want to get us too deep into this. I, no, I want to no, let you I, I appreciate it. No, I appreciate it, Jim, because... This is something that that maybe ones were not uh, not aware of when it comes to this pandemic, and uh, ones need to know out what's out there and what the uh, United Spinal uh, Association is, is providing out there. And and Jim, this is one of the things I wanted to wanted to ask you about too, about this pandemic versus like hurricane relief and and other times where um, United Spinal had to jump into action to help out. How is this one? different and more challenging and how have you guys been able to to meet this challenge uh during this time well you know it's funny because it was baffling to me when i was looking at it when you look at it you know the, the pandemic it's a global problem with national implications and acute local implications and even more acute implications on the sci population so the weird thing about this one is it's everywhere. I mean, it may not be as uh, uh, intense in some cities as in or as others or in some areas as others, but it's everywhere. So people need help all over. Um, it's going to be with us a long time. It's not going to be a disaster that comes and goes and then we recover. We're going to be fighting it and dealing with it for six months, a year at least. Um, and lifestyles are completely interrupted. Um, one of the funny things about this is it's in New Mobility Magazine this month, 
which they did a great job on the COVID issue. Uh, Andrea Dalzell, who's a nurse, uh, who uses a wheelchair, couldn't get a job. And, and it, now if you're a nurse and you're willing to work, they'll take you. And she is in the thick of it. She is in the thick of it. And I'm just so happy for her. Um, I, I, you know, I always find that when things are bad, employers don't fire disabled people. They fire the least productive people. They may not hire disabled people, but once they've got a guy in the workforce who's productive, they're not firing them. They're firing the least productive guy. So, and that, that was true 30 years ago too. You know, business is business. Um, but uh, it's, it's been a big challenge because we know this is a long-term problem. We also have to get people back to work when, when, when areas open up. Just look at what we do. We have 10 people on staff that do barrier-free design consulting. Um, accessible design consulting. Um, after the ADA passed, we, we, I mean, I've been there 41 years and I'm a lawyer and I've been suing, you know, for disability rights uh, when there were basically no disability rights, but <laughs> when we started. But, um, and a lot of it is over architecture because we are, represent people in wheelchairs. But um, after the ADA passed, we still do litigation, let's not kid ourselves, we're still an advocacy group, but on barrier-free design, on accessible design, we realized that we knew more than most people, even architects, even big developers, and that we can teach continuing education to architects, and we can do consulting with real estate developers and their architects to either make sure that they're building before it goes up, is state-of-the-art and accessible or and compliant with state and local as well as uh, federal laws uh, or uh, if they are defendants in a lawsuit and they want to comply with the law not if they want to get away with breaking it but if they want to comply with the law we will show them what to do uh, to, and, and testify on their behalf once they've made changes um, uh, so they can be in compliance. Those jobs require people to travel all over the country. That tends to have, they travel. All, we've actually sent a guy to Dubai once to do a job, you know. As long as you'll pay the travel, we'll send a guy. But Now, can, um, I, can, I, can I volunteer for the Dubai trip next time, Jim? Yeah, right. You know? <laughs> There's some good assignments. Definitely. Some good assignments. Um, most of them are not like that, but <laughs> every once in a while it's exotic. But uh, they couldn't travel. So we also do plan review. People submit building plans to us to review for them before they go to a design and uh, before they go to construction. Um, we've been doing lots of plan review and redeploying the staff to do that. Anything now they can drive to, and they live all over the US, luckily, the 10 of them, but anything they can drive to, and that will be either one person at the site or no one at the site, they can do an inspection, a site walkthrough and inspection. But an occupied building, I just don't want them doing. I don't want people to take those kind of risks. This, we, we charge the developers for this service. We charge the uh, uh, architects if we're um, reviewing plans. And that pays for our charitable services. 
So the million dollar grant from Nielsen really came through for us because we're not on our fee generating end, we're not making as much money, but we're surviving and uh, no one's laid off and we're there for the community. Um, our chapters are incredibly active. We had a chapter leaders meeting last week. Um, people are, well, by the way, we were able to use the Nielsen grant to get masks from China. Actually the head of the Puerto Rico chapter, uh, I think her name is Gretchen uh, Dilan, uh, is among other professions an importer and, uh, in Puerto Rico. And she was getting masks. And she asked us, do we want some? And this was in March when it was the height of craziness and there was no PPE. And, uh, you know, we just got the money from Neil. So we said, yes, get us some. So we were able to get 5,000 masks and get them out to people who are desperate. Um, the chapters let everybody know. We did uh, uh, social media let everybody know about the uh, mini grants and the which are exhausted now and the uh, uh we held some money back for later if the virus stays but for more mini grants but this tranche is completely exhausted um and and we heard stories from people that would break your heart the husband was the primary caregiver and he died recently and they finally got an attendant and now the personal care attendant won't come and you can understand the reason why, I don't have to tell you, but you can understand the reasons why personal care gets interrupted. You've got people traveling to and from home, they either get exposed, you know, work to home, they either get exposed and have to isolate or they get sick and have to isolate. Many of our members are afraid to let the personal care worker come. So they have a family member move in with them and take care of them. People have doubled up to share caregivers Mm -hmm. uh, for the crisis, but it's been tough. It's been tough. The head of our New York chapter, Jose Hernandez, who also works in the New York office, has had the same personal care attendant for 12 years. And um, on Easter Sunday, his personal care attendant died from COVID. Luckily, oh. Jose is not sick. Oh. But yeah, I mean, you know, Jose's in our office, which means Fausto, his attendant, was in our office every day. Yeah. He went, he, he, he was dead in four days. He went in the hospital and died. And he was at NYU Langone. It's not like he was in a terrible place. This disease just, it's merciless with some people. Wow. But, which I feel like we're turning a corner. Yeah. Um, uh, I feel like we're all getting used to this new lifestyle. There'll be wheel sanitation efforts. I'm yeah. sure on wheelchairs and things. Um, we're trying to prepare materials now. We just had a meeting about it yesterday mm -hmm. with both our accessibility consulting staff and uh, we're going to prepare three different types of materials for re-entering the world. One would be for accessibility consulting staff, which would be the gold standard. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do as a, uh, as a uh, proprietor of a building that invites the public in or employees in? How do you, what do you do to respect the rights of people with disabilities but still be safe? Um, and then we need materials like that for our 
I'm going to call them lay people, not architecture trained people, to do employer trainings and corporate kind of events. And then we also need advocates slash members slash disability community materials. What am I entitled to as a person with a disability when I approach a cash register, uh, which used to be accessible to me, but now because of the COVID precautions they've taken, I can't get near it. Or, and you can go on and on. And then of course, there's the giant, the sleeping giant employment discrimination problem of your employer reopens, but you're 69 years old like I am and think that your immunity is a little compromised and you don't want to go back to work yet. Or you really do have a diagnosis, like I have two stents from the heart. My doctor tells me don't go back to work, but my employer says we're open. We need you. Those things are gonna happen. And then the uh, employers are gonna say, oh, well, you've had the disease, you can come back to work because you're immune. But you haven't had it, I don't wanna worry about it. Yeah. And then employer liability, they invite you back to work and people get sick at work. Is the employer responsible? They wanna be immune. Nursing homes wanna be immune for obvious reasons, 40,000 deaths or something. But, yeah. you, you know, but, but everybody's trying to get by you understand why the employer wants to be immune. He's just trying to get by. He doesn't want, he's trying to give you your job back. He doesn't want to get sued for doing it. But the standards that have to be met, I would think cleanliness, yeah, um, accommodation, disinfecting, those kind of things, I would think that employers must have some duty to do that. Of course, there's no law or regulations around this. Yeah. And uh, do it's it for too new. Do and with Trump as president, there probably won't be. <laughs> do it out of the kindness of their heart, right, Joe? <laughs> like, everybody wants them to do it out of the kindness of their heart, and we know that's... Some people yeah, will do yeah. it, but others, you know, like, oh, I don't have to do it. Nobody's telling me how to do it, but but you bring up a very good point. And, and Jim, when we look at the year 2020 um, as a whole, uh, this was a year that started off with a, a lot of optimism, a lot of a cheer, a lot of fanfare, especially for us, uh, because of the 30th anniversary of, of the signing of the ADA. And Jim, looking back on when that was signed into law to where we're at today, how do you think we are doing? Because you were doing uh, disability rights even before that law was on the book. So how do you think we're, we're doing as a whole when it comes to this? Well, I like to say in the beginning there was darkness, the same way the Old Testament starts. Um, in the beginning there was darkness, so we've come a long way. By the time the ADA passed, about 38 states had non-discrimination laws. But about 38 states that had non-discrimination laws weren't really practicing what they preached. They required non-discrimination, but nobody could even identify a discriminatory practice unnecessary patronization and separation and special treatment was still viewed in 1990 as the milk of human kindness and not as discriminatory practice. So I think that has changed. I think the biggest change, the most quantifiable change for the better is architecture. Um, people understand barrier-free design um, they, they expect it, they anticipate it in new buildings, they complain when it's not accessible in new buildings, 
or when big renovations are noticed and accessible and accessibility is not a component. Architects, engineers, building owners, they're getting it. Um, it's slow. If you're in a wheelchair, you can tell me I'm full of it. I get it. Um, but trust me, it was worse before the ADA. Um, barriers in existing places that should be removed are not, and the law requires it, but some are, and you can get it done. Um, effective public relations and tax incentives um, directed this way would, would, would work. It worked in the beginning if we made a big effort again we could get more barriers removed. Attitudes have changed towards people with disabilities in some respects. In 1975, they passed the, it was called then the Education for All Handicapped Children's Act. Now it's referred to as IDEA, uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. That required for the first time in American history, the mainstreaming of disabled students into public schools. I actually believed, I became a lawyer in 77. I believe that that law would be all we needed by now. I believe that if I went to public school with severely disabled kids my whole life, that when I graduated, I would consider them peers. But I was wrong about that. That's not the way things evolved. Um, you needed more than just exposure. Um, there was exposure in school, although it's not what I imagined it would be conceptually. It wasn't as, in, it's never been as integrated as I, I thought it would be. But um, the job market has been tough uh, for people with disabilities and the unemployment rate is the same as it was, basically the same as it was pre-ADA. That doesn't mean that people with disabilities haven't achieved great things. And if you look at individuals, it's remarkable what they've accomplished. But as a group, and we know that there's you know, several types of people with disabilities. There's people with disabilities that want to work and want to be integrated. There's people with disabilities that want to be protected and want to be taken care of. And there's people with minor disabilities who want to be pensioned off as if they have major disabilities, malingerers, let's call them. Um, and everybody's concept of disability is different in the general public. But United Spinal's concept of disability is people who are active and out there or who at least aspire to be and don't want to be walled off from society. Um, everybody wants to have good health care and, and adequate housing, adequate accessible affordable housing and things like that. Um, and I would say that 100% of our members are in favor of that, and so is the organization. Its board of directors is made up of people with spinal cord injury. So uh, its priorities are the people's priorities, people with spinal cord injury's priorities. But we ignore government and political responses to disability as you just want something for nothing. Uh, we don't even respond to it. <laughs> it's so not true. It's just beneath the dignity of the people we represent to get into this fight. This is not a welfare type organization or a seeking that or, or anything like that. Um, 
when we get pushed, painted with that brush, we really resist. This is very much a level playing field organization. It has never been, in 1946, we were called Eastern Paralyzed Veterans Association, mm -hmm. founded in the Bronx uh, VA hospital. The one that uh, born on the 4th of July was about 30 years later, uh, that story. You know, the Tom Cruise movie yeah. and the Ron Kovic novel. Um, Ron Kovic was an EPBA member, the guy who wrote the book. Um, those guys never were about cures. I mean, everybody's about a cure at some point in their disability, I'm sure. I mean, if you're not, you're strange. Um, so I, I think that as everybody who, especially adult onset, you know, trauma, everybody's thinking about cures. But eventually it's housing, employment, transportation, love life, family, um, you know, gets in the way of the, or becomes the, the things you're enthusiastic about. And so that has been what EPBA and United Spinal have been about since 1946. In 1946, it was about getting out of the hospital and living in the community and then getting an adapted vehicle and adapted housing and, and training and jobs. And it's always been about living in the community and living the, living the dream, so to speak, the American dream, um, which is becoming elusive. It's, it's getting very hard to do that. And, uh, it, it, even with all these laws requiring accommodation, um, and even with employment and unemployment at 3% only a few months ago, um, people with disabilities still struggle in the labor force to get adequate employment or employment that's equal to what they're qualified to do, that they're not underemployed, um, and uh, to get the equal, equal chance at promotion and opportunities to lead, to say nothing of getting their foot in the door in the first place. Yeah. Um, I, I said earlier though, and I still say it, once employers hire a person with a disability, it's strictly the merits. Absolutely. Um, if you're producing, they love you. Yeah, and, and that's one thing that I, from my personal experience, I, I got injured in 1993, so 27 years ago. So it was like three years after uh, the signing of, uh, of the ADA. And I remember when I got my, my first job as an employee, and it's one of those things you really want to do your best because you know all eyes are on you. Everybody's waiting for you to mess up. But I had some pretty cool coworkers. So I remember I worked so hard that my bosses would always say, you guys need to work hard like Paul. You need to work hard like Paul. So you're spot on, Jim. You know, when we get these jobs, I mean, we do our best and we work hard. And all we need is, is just a chance. And that's where you came in, uh, Jim, many years ago as an advocate, what, what was kind of that spark that made you want to get involved to help out our community? Was it a personal experience that you- It was. Witnessed? It was. I've had uh, uh, a couple of, uh, I've been thinking about all this because it's 30 years since ADA and you do a lot of reflecting and I'm gonna retire soon and I wanna write a book about it. So I really, I really do have been thinking about it. Um, I followed a girl that I was interested in when I was 16 years old to a day camp for disabled kids. And uh, I still could find her if I had to. I know where she lives. But um, we haven't seen each other much except one high school reunion in all those years. But um, 
I met a guy named Paul Hearn there, and he was a contemporary, but he had a driver's license and I didn't. And he had osteogenesis and perfecta, which meant he was brittle boned. Uh, and uh, he used a wheelchair at the time. He actually used a gurney at the time, and he was dwarfed. And um, he was garrulous and friendly, and I had no disabled friends or anybody in my family that had a real substantial disability. But we became friends because we had a lot in common. We both, we liked each other. He had a driver's license and I didn't. So it seemed like a good fit for me. <laughs> Absolutely. Sounds good to me. Yeah. And uh, he was the ham radio counselor and I was a lifeguard. And um, we were friendly and we stayed friendly through college. And then we both ended up going to law school. And I ran into him in Manhattan when I was about to, I was graduating, I was studying for the bar exam. I lived in Manhattan, so did he. We ran into each other on the street and secretary of HEW, then it was called uh, Health, Education and Welfare, Joe Califano, had signed the first set of 504 regulations right before that. The first federal civil rights law uh, that touched on disability having to do with recipients of federal funds not being able to discriminate, which is mostly state and local government. Um, and I said, hey, congratulations. And he said, for what? And I'm holding up the Times article showing them that Califano signed, Califano signed the reg. He said, it's a piece of paper. I said, it's a piece of paper, but you know, it's the beginning of something. And he goes, paper never changes people's lives. And we went into this little bar on the corner where I lived in what's called Tribeca now, it was called Washington Market then, in Manhattan. And we had our first political conversation, political slash legal conversation. He was a lawyer for less than one year and I was graduating uh, about the rights of people with disabilities. We'd known each other 11 years. We'd gone to law college, law school, we never had this conversation. I'd go into a restaurant or a bar with him and friends and people would say, don't put him there. And I would think, what an ignoramus maybe. Or, and I would say something like, he speaks, talk to him. Or he goes where he wants or, you know, what will he have, ask him, you know, those kind of things. But I, I, I never thought there would be a law. Um, but we had this conversation and uh, we ended up writing a grant proposal and getting it funded. I, I was supposed to go to work in the Brooklyn DA's office, but they froze hiring because New York City went broke. And um, Paul called me and said, you want to write a grant proposal together to do disability, traditional poor people's legal services for people with disabilities who can't get into poor people's legal services offices because they're architecturally inaccessible. And we got Senator Javits behind it. Paul was able to do that. He had the gift of gab. And um, Paul said, uh, we went to see Senator Javits in his New York office, not in DC. And he, we were driving up Third Avenue to the office and Paul said, uh, watch this, the negative presumption will work for us. I said, what's the negative presumption? He said, when we go to Javits's office, he'll talk to you because I'm in a wheelchair. And then when I speak up, and I'm only as articulate as you are, he'll realize I'm not a moron and feel guilty 
overreact, say everything I'm saying is brilliant and give us whatever we want. And I said something like, from your mouth to God's ears. But that is, it's like he scripted the meeting. That's exactly what occurred. And uh, he's the reason I'm involved. He founded AAPD, American Association of People with Disabilities, the Paul Hearn Award to leaders in the community. is named after him. And I've been on the board of AAPD since the beginning for 25 years. Uh, this is its 25th anniversary. It was founded on the five-year anniversary of the ADA. Um, so that, you know, that's pretty much the reason. Um, and then um, when I was a legal services corporation lawyer with Paul, he said to me, I'll take employment, you take transportation. As if we actually thought we could do something. You know, we we're in our 20s, we had no idea. And uh, uh, he did get very involved in employment. And uh, there was a woman, a disability activist named Frida Zames in New York who came into the office and asked me to go to a Metropolitan Transportation Authority board meeting with her. That people with disabilities were going to testify. This is 1977, September 77. People with disabilities were going to testify that they were gonna buy minibuses for Staten Island and at least put lifts or ramps on the minibuses. Uh, that the driver could operate and to see if people with disabilities would come out and use them. So I went to the hearing with her and this group called Disabled in Action, which Judy Human, a famous disabled New Yorker, has been who people think of as being from Berkeley, but she's a New Yorker. Um, Judy Human founded Disabled in Action. I went with members of Disabled in Action to uh, the MTA board meeting. And when the public testified, the MTA board was attentive and asked questions. And, but when disabled people got up and testified, they all began talking to each other, the board members. And some got up and left and went to the bathroom and got coffee and came back and made like it wasn't really happening. And only a few of the board members were looking at the people with disabilities and listening to them. And it got under my skin, just something about that kind of wholesale dismissal of, of, of a whole population got under my skin and stayed there. It just stayed there. It's still there. Um, they did it. They caused it. I'm telling you, I was not, when I was 28, I was an angry guy, 26, 29. I was a young man, you know, you, um, and, and um, you're probably the nicest thing you could say about me. I was like a dog with a bone. Mm -hmm. That would be the nicest thing. And you could probably say a lot of nastier things. I'm much better than that now. And I have been for many, many years. But they got me so angry by treating people that way that I got angry at transit. And it took two more years till I got to EPDA, to Eastern Paralyzed Veterans, um, via the governor of New York's office for a six-week stint. But um, we sued New York City Transit when I got there. And I was uh, 28, and we litigated for five years. And I was, you know, 40 when it was over, even though it was only five years, because it was just so amazing. <laughs> um, but I learned a lot about transit, and then we sued Philadelphia, and did got a similar deal in Philadelphia, key stations, which is the most right-thinking Democrats would ever do. Um, Republicans thought it was insane. Even right-thinking Democrats would only agree to some stations. Um, and, and paratransit and lifts on buses. 
in the, in the two big old rail cities in the U.S. And then uh, it was 1988 and ADA rolled around. And believe it or not, <laughs> there were no transit experts on the disability side. Uh, transit experts get paid by transit. So consultants and things, they don't want to help people with disabilities. So there was not a lot of uh, knowledge. So me and a few others that knew transit got involved. If you want something not to work well, ask a lawyer how to plan it or how to operate it. Um, lawyers shouldn't solve mechanical problems, period. If lawyers could start the lawnmower, they would, you know. Um, but if you look at the ADA, the most specific parts of it, the most, the longest parts, the most tedious parts are the transportation parts. And the reason why is there was a long history of discrimination. So it prohibits a lot of acts. It prohibits a lot of things transit authorities did. Um, and, and I, I was also involved with writing the regulation as well as the statute to implement the transit part. And um, I think it's worked pretty well. You know, considering that the, the frame was around the art before we painted it, um, it worked pretty well. You had to solve small operators, medium-sized operators, big cities, rural communities, you know. It, 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 it's tough to make a rule of general applicability, and it worked pretty well. The ride shares and the Ubers, you know, of the world have challenged us. Oh, yeah. But we got taxis in New York accessible after a 20-year struggle, which I thought would never happen. I really thought it would never happen. And now that we got them accessible, they're going out of business because of Uber and uh, Lyft. But Uber and Lyft are beginning to respond to the accessibility um, initiative as well. Yeah. Your ridership is aging incredibly and vehicles are gonna be self-driving soon. Mm -hmm. So autonomous vehicles don't have to look like off the shelf cars. Mm -hmm. You could be driving around in the living room. Yeah. So there, it can look there's like, no reason. It's like an old no Pacer gremlin, right? Right, Jim? Uh, an old Pacer or gremlin, right? We'll, we'll be fine with it, right? Do you know Paul Hearn was, had a gremlin? The car that we were driving up 3rd Avenue in was the most beat-up gremlin you've ever seen. He parked it on Manhattan Streets because um, he had a special permit, but that doesn't mean people don't bang into it. Right. It was the most beat-up car you've ever seen still on the road, and it was a gremlin, a green gremlin. Yeah, the real battle act right there. Hey, but but Jim, one thing that I wanted to wanted to highlight too that some may be uh, not familiar with you were there actually at the signing of the ADA. Talk about talk about that experience and that and that culmination. You know, there are big events in your life. Um, I, I I met President Obama and shook his hand on the twenty fifth anniversary of ADA, and that was just about. Uh, yeah, I can't tell you. I was on cloud nine. I, I, I still haven't come down. It was amazing. We were at the White House. It was just incredible. Um, but going to the bills, you know, the birth of your children, you're in the room. It's incredible. It's like a miracle. Um, there's things like that. The ADA, I was on vacation, um, but I knew it might be signed. So I took a suit with me because um, I thought I'd get invited to the bill signing and I was. <laughs> And uh, I flew down to DC from uh, Massachusetts. And I got in the cab and I said, to the White House. And that's a pretty cool thing to say. 
Um, and in those days, you didn't drive up the circular driveway, you know, the semicircular driveway, but you did drive right to the gates. And, uh, you know, it was before terrorism made that part of Pennsylvania Avenue closed. So I went to the gate and the guard, I sent him here for a bill to the Americans with Disabilities Act signing. And he checked my name on a list and said, you have to go around the other side of the White House. And so I figured this is going to be, I, that's when I learned it was an outdoor ceremony. And I thought, oh, this is going to be so cool. Maybe we'll be in the Rose Garden, you know, making up this scenario. And I turned the corner and there is this crowd of disabled people on the White House lawn that made me feel so stupid and so insignificant. Um, like here I'm thinking I'm such a big shot to the White House and walking around to the road. And now I'm just going to be part of this crowd. On the other hand, it was the most uplifting, incredible thing. You, 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 you realize that generations of people had lived and died to make this happen. And that you are just happened to be on the crest of a civil rights wave that's breaking right now. And you're lucky enough to be part of that. It's, there's so many people who've come before. And so many people will go home and preach this gospel that this is an enormous event. So then we get out there on the lawn, and we're all, it, it, it's pretty hot. Um, and uh, President Bush, who without, we would not have an ADA, without a Republican president who supported it, would have been almost impossible. Um, uh, uh, President Bush, uh, his White House, had banned the legal brains of Heifeld Bloom, uh, who is a professor at uh, Georgetown Law School and uh, now, but she was working for the uh, ACLU um, AIDS Rights Project. And she was kind of the legal brains of the ADA outfit on the lobbying side. They banned her from the bill signing, and I was very upset about that because she was an ACLU employee, and that was when... President Bush was saying things like a card-carrying member of the ACLU, as if it was a Communist Party kind of thing. Um, and I was upset about it, and it was hard not, not to feel that. But out came President Bush, and uh, it was a terrific speech. And people with disabilities, and me, myself, were really moved by the event. And then there was this one moment, um, Reverend Harold Wilkie, if you look at that famous picture of Bush signing the ADA, um, one of the guys up there is Harold Wilkie. He's a minister with no arms. He's a bilateral amputee at the shoulder. And he was up on the stage with uh, President Bush. And um, when they sign their names to a bill, they have a lot of pens and they write G and they hand a pen to somebody, E, and they hand a pen and O and they hand a pen. And so there's a line of people on the podium that keeps moving forward to get a pen and one of them is Reverend Wilkie. And President Bush is facing the group of disabled people on the lawn and Reverend Wilkie steps up and he has no arms and there's this audible inhalation of breath from the audience on the lawn, like what's gonna happen? And Wilkie, who had to be in his 50s, I would say late 40s, 50s, takes off his shoe, his loafer, grabs the pen out of the president's hand with his foot in a sock and sticks it in his breast pocket. Wow. Yes. And then he puts his foot in the shoe 
and sits down and President Bush is laughing and it's just like the best moment. And it's, it's the best moment because it's a stupid little story. But it's the metaphor that's the ADA, it really is. Just because you can't do it doesn't mean it can't be done that way. Just because you can't do it that way. Just because you think it's impossible doesn't mean it is. Um, why would a guy put himself in a position to be embarrassed in front of thousands of people? Why would a person who couldn't swim take a wheelchair to a pool, a public pool, and go in and drown themselves? Yet people run out and go, no, 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 don't use the deep end. Mm-hmm. Right? What, are people in wheelchairs so dumb they want to drown? Of course not. But our response is always the wrong one to that. It's always, you know, it's erring on the side of safety, maybe, or on the side of accommodation or protectionism or something. But we don't expect those kind of things. And we, we usually respond strangely to it. But the Reverend Wilkie thing for me was the moment. Now, the interesting thing about that is that when uh, we were doing the ADA, um, Congressman Dingell, who passed away uh, last year, uh, had, uh, he was trying to amend the ADA to take out mental disability as part of the definition of disability. Um, and, uh, he, you know, it would only be physical disabilities that were covered. And um, we had gotten mental health advocates in Michigan organized to keep mental health still in there, you know. Um, and we had a meeting. Uh, in his office because he was also trying to exempt Amtrak from the ADA. And um, he didn't want people with Tourette's on Amtrak. So we, because they scream out obscenity and his grandchildren take Amtrak to Washington. And, you know, it was one of these weird, very narrow, (laughs) kind of myopic viewpoints of disability and disability rights. And we explained that people with Tourette's are already on Amtrak. They don't need ramps and elevators to get on. So this would just give people the right to throw them off. And they were not yielding. And we got the president of Amtrak to tell Dingle, thank you, but we don't need that kind of protection. We won't put people off the train for being disabled. And if we do, it would be like black or religion or women or if we throw them off the train for those reasons, then we should be sued. We don't want protection. My employees don't do diagnoses. My employees sell you a ticket if you have the fare. Um, and everything is great, and we think we've got it settled. And one of Dingle's staffers said to me, what about people who eat with their feet? <laughs> Would you want to take Amtrak? and sit next to a guy who eats with his feet. I go, you mean a bilateral amputee? Yes. Had the shoulders, yes. I said, well, yes, I would. I mean, you know, for 200 bucks, you go to Chicago and get to see a guy who eats with his feet. Most trips are just trips to Chicago. This one, you got to see a guy. And I made a little joke and we giggled all the way out of it. Yeah, you said a dinner and a show, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, so we giggled our way out of an awkward situation. But then one of those guys who eats with his feet was up there with the president when <laughs> he signed the bill. So it's apparently more of an issue than we know. But no, I'm glad. Yeah. I, you know, the ADA for me is this exquisite pleasure. It's this great coming together of all these disability organizations and people with disabilities. And uh, someone asked me the other day, did we know it was a big deal when we were working on it? 
yes, yes. Every single person knew. Everybody knew it's going to change things. Yeah. Nobody thought. We were worried about enforcement. But everybody knew it required like wholesale change in attitude as well uh, in approach. Uh, uh, that, that disability pension me off thing, um, which is the general public's perception of disability when I first started, I think, that people got hurt on the job, so they wanted to be pensioned to stay home. And some people were malingerers, and some people were real. And that was the that's that was disability. That was what people thought about. Um, they didn't think about lifestyle and choices and education and employment and housing and all the institutions of life that were uh, uh, cramped, pinched, squeezed. It's just not easy for people with disabilities. Whenever it's an institution, a life domain, whatever you want to call it, for people with disabilities, there's always a rub, there's always friction, there's always something hard. Um, even hiring a disabled person. Well, don't pay me this much, I gotta only make this much until then, and then I can make more. You know, they come with bags, not just accommodation bags. Um, and and that, that's, that was people's perception beforehand and i think now people are willing to accept people with disabilities more for what they can do than for what they look like or sound like and you but know, there's still big problems you know what happens too jim i think uh some of these uh, persons who are in position of hiring they either have a family member that's disabled a spouse so now they understand from experience um just the struggle that one has and it's interesting how life sometimes happens to teach us a lesson when it comes to, to certain things. And we're so glad, uh, Jim, that, that you've been at the forefront of this fight and helping us out. We know you're about to retire. So Jim, what's next? I heard about a book is, is well, my desire is to write, I read this book two years ago and I'm going to credit him completely for inspiring me. Al Franken, uh, the Senator from Minnesota, former Senator from Minnesota wrote a book called Al Franken, Giant of the Senate by Al Franken. And even the title made me laugh. So I bought the book. It's laugh out loud on public transportation funny. Um, I, used to, I used to get a seat by the window. I take the Long Island Railroad to the subway every day. I got a seat by the window so I could look out the window on the railroad. So people didn't see me laughing for no reason. You know, but <laughs> it's about policy. It's, I mean, the first third is stories about Saturday Night Night Live that you probably don't know, insider oh, stuff, which is pretty oh, funny. Yeah. Hi, I'm Al. <laughs> right, exactly. But the second two thirds are policy. It's why he ran for office and what he did when he got there. Um, but he makes it funny. He, makes, he gives examples, real life examples that illustrate principles, but they're funny. They're light. You get it. It's palatable. It's digestible. It's not off-putting. Um, and, and, uh, you know, that disability is funny. I have this idea, you know, we're going to send out a thing to get everybody's, uh, three minute video clip of their 30th anniversary feelings of ABA, good, bad, and different, whatever it is. We'd like to try to put a montage kind of thing together. But if this COVID virus thing keeps lasting, I want to do another one of 
tell me your funniest disability discrimination story. Mm-hmm. Not your most vicious, not your most, I don't want to hear your ardor. We always hear those. I want to hear the one where someone says something so stupid to you that you can't believe it, that you just start laughing. Or, you know, there's a guy, a good example, Hal Krentz, uh, the movie and stage show Butterflies Are Free are about this blind guy. He's a real person. He passed away a long time ago. Um, but he uh, was a, a White House fellow for Reagan or Bush, uh, Bush one. And uh, he was blind. And I was having lunch with him one day. And he told me this story that he was cutting a bagel and he cut his hand. And his wife took him to the emergency room to get stitches. And it was obvious that he was blind because he was led into the treatment room. So the doctor says to the nurse, ask him how he did this. And he says, uh, she goes, how'd you do this? And he goes, I was cutting a bagel. And she says to the doctor, he was cutting a bagel. And the the doctor said uh, something like, he asked another question and he said, Al Krenz said, I don't have a hearing impairment. I'm blind. I hear you. You can hear me. And the nurse turned to the doctor and said, he said he doesn't have a hearing impairment. He's just blind. You know, those kind of stories. Are yeah. the one, I love those it. kind. The ones that just are so ridiculous. Yeah. I gotta, I gotta, and I, I think people will entertain each other and everybody has them. Yeah. I totally agree, and I, I definitely, definitely looking forward to that. And be, before I let you go, uh, Jim, because I thoroughly enjoyed our our conversation, I can't believe, can't believe we chatted for about an hour. That's that's why I, I love hearing you and hearing you talk because, you know, time just flies. Now the 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 fifty four thousand dollar question: Will Nick be writing your forward in your book? That's what everybody wants to know. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I I was thinking about this the other day. Not will Nick be writing my forward, but you know how books, I've been looking at books because, you know, you think about when you're going to write, when you think about how people do it. So I was thinking about, you know, the foreword always looks like it to me, it's written after the book, right? So it's really an afterward put in the front. And I've been looking at books and I realized I was thinking that I should really write a foreword myself, that this is what I think I'm going to write and then see what it looks like when it's over is the foreword right. I may not use that for the forward of the book. I might, you know, have Nick write the forward of the book. But I, I, I want to see, like, if where I think it's going to go is where it's going to go. I love it. You know? I love it. I, I, but I, I have 10 grandchildren. I want to play with my grandchildren, you know, although nobody will let me near them now. And, yeah. You know, <laughs> it's just we, so bad now. Well, you, well, you know what, um, Jim, we're going to miss you. You've been an amazing advocate, amazing you know, leader in this. And, and we know we can always reach out to you, you know, when you finally retire to mess with you and, and, uh, and, and put you, put you back to work, especially because I'm in California, Jim, and I'm on my second strike. So I might catch a case real soon. So I'm gonna need your help. Can you give me <laughs> it's a law for me? Can you help me out? <laughs> and these prisons are coronavirus hotbeds. I know. I bet. I bet it'd be good then, right? I want that third strike. <laughs> hey, my friend, but, but great, great catching up with you. We're looking forward to to the future and thank you so much for all all that you do and have done well, thank you and paul I, I i would be remiss if i didn't ask about your amadeus middle name 
All right. I'll tell you the story. Um, when I was younger, I was a musician. So I was in a rap group and I did music. So we were all looking for cool um, rap names. So at first they said, you should be the Black Beethoven and blah, blah, blah. I said, no, that doesn't roll off the tongue. So what they said was, I said, what about Amadeus? Because I watched the movie. Right. And I was like, what about Paul Amadeus Lane? So as a musician and everything, Amadeus just stuck with me. And then when I got into to the media and broadcasting, I wanted to make sure I branded myself because there's a lot of Paul Lanes up there. Right. So Paul Amadeus Lane. So it works great. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's got a real musical sound to it. It really yeah. does. And, and it kind of just pays homage to my past yep. and to my future. And yeah, thank you for asking me. Uh, Jim, I really appreciate that, my friend. I'm glad to hear it. And I love the name. And I'll never forget it. Thank you so much. And as, and as a pirate from Seton Hall, I hope next year we get some basketball, right? Are you a Seton Hall pirate? No, I just like P.J. Carlissimo when he was coaching. So I kind of adopted it. Me yeah. too. I, 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 I'm a big Seton Hall fan. Definitely. Well, hey, great catching up with you, my friend. Looking forward to some more, okay? Take it easy. Awesome. Cool. Bye-bye, Paul. Thank you, Jim. A huge shout-out to Jim Wiseman, president and CEO of United Spinal Association. I just loved his insight, loved his stories. And um, you know I had to throw that question about Nick Lavasi. Uh, he and Nick are funny. I went to an event last year with them in, in Vegas, and them two going at it was was pretty funny. So it was comedy. But thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed all the amazing stories that Jim had, his insight. Hope it inspired you. Uh, maybe you are looking for ways to help out the community. Maybe you're disabled and, and looking for ways to just, to just better yourself and your situation. Hopefully that, that truly uh, was able to inspire you. All right. Well, it's time for me to get out of here. Look forward to our next show together. Until then, take care. I love you guys. And please be safe during this COVID-19. Catch all the updates on the Twitter at United Spinal. Follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash United Spinal Association. Make sure you go to our brand new website, unitedspinal.org. You'll find advocacy empowerment, independence, and more. United on Wheels. Thanks for listening.